I've never seen an outpouring against an idea like this. The um, father, my daughter, played pretty high-level club volleyball, and he had read about what we're doing. He said, I want to give you a check. And I said, well, that's very nice of you. He put a check in my pocket, and I looked later, and it was $10,000 unsolicited. I don't think that's ever happened to me before. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Dowen-Howard. We continue our TXU at 10 series today on the other side of the ideological spectrum, as it were, the environmental community. We're going to dive right in, so if you want more context on the events surrounding the details of the expansion, the buyout, and its aftermath, be sure to check out the introduction episode of this series. You may be wondering why I was interested in talking to the environmental groups. You know that this program is more business-focused than other podcasts, but the role that the environmental community played in what is still the largest private equity deal in the history of finance cannot be ignored. Today, you're going to get a peek inside the boardroom where environmentalists literally got a seat at the table of high finance. As I mentioned in the introductory episode, it was reported that environmentalists, led by Jim Marston at Environmental Defense, met with Texas Pacific Group and Colbert, Kravis, and Roberts less than a week before the buyout was made public and hammered out terms that would make the buyout acceptable in the eyes of the environmental community. While cutting this episode, I began to muse about who really won in this whole situation. Did TXU win? They ultimately built three new coal-fired units. Did the environmental community win? They got eight coal units canceled and several other concessions. Did the buyers? The deal went through the same year it was announced. Maybe not all fights are zero-sum. I'll admit, I've spent a large part of my career in the energy sector opposite the environmental community at large, even though I consider myself an enviro-capitalist, that is, finding a more business-friendly way to be more environmentally conscious. Even when I was working for the Clean Coal Foundation, an organization that was working to cap carbon emissions from the biggest carbon emitters, several environmental groups still opposed us outright. One of these was a gentleman mentioned in this interview, Tom Smitty Smith. He was a fixture at the Capitol in Austin, and I was reading about him in papers long before I met him in person. One day, a few years after the buyout, when I was working for the foundation, I went on a lunch run to a coal-fired pizza restaurant and brought back some pies to the Capitol. Smitty was in the hallway, and we invited him in and offered him a slice. I considered it a coal-fired olive branch. Today, we are talking to Jim Marston, the Texas Regional Director Director and VP of Clean Energy for Environmental Defense Fund, an international environmental group. I had never met Jim until this interview, but he was extremely gracious and I was extremely grateful for his insights into this story. We spoke while he was in his office in Austin and I was sitting in a rainstorm in West Virginia. Rather than record the phone call, I tried some tricks to give us a clear audio signal, which you may notice. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jim Marston. 
We're here with Jim Marson, Environmental Defense Fund. Jim, you've been around a long time. Tell us how you entered the environmental community in Texas. Well, I was a lawyer by training, and I first worked for the Attorney General's office at a law school in the Environmental Protection Division. Then I went to a private law practice where I did only a little environmental work, but I continued to do volunteer work and served on boards or did volunteer work for environmental groups. And eventually, I was one of the folks who helped start the EDF office in Texas where we raise money from Texans to show that we could support an office here. The period we're going to talk about is really that period in 2006 when TXU announced a coal expansion to the buyout before the coal expansion in 2006. What were your feelings towards TXU? Well, we had had one case where we intervened in a rate case where they were very aggressive. Maybe they'd say we were very aggressive. I thought they were we're not complying with the law, and so we pointed that out in our cross-examination. And also, they had an environmental vice president who literally at one point said to me, none of the pollution from our plants is going into the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and if it were, I would shut down the plants myself immediately. Well, he had not kept up with the science, and the science of transport of ozone was clear that those plants were big causes of the Dallas Fort Worth having ozone problems. So it was, at that point, not the most environmentally minded company in the state of Texas. The story really picks up in 2006. There was a blackout during that period. TXU planned an expansion of 11 coal-fired units to help mitigate a forecasted shortfall in electricity demand. What was your take on that? A few months before TXU announced its plan, there was this out-of-the-blue announcement from Governor Perry that he was going to fast-track permit applications for coal power plants. We thought, what the heck is this about? And then a couple months later came the TXU announcement, and we knew immediately there'd been some private, off-the-record conversations between the governor and TXU, and that he was doing this to help TXU. So that's when we started dealing with these applications. I know they used this relatively minor blackout as an excuse, but it wasn't a lack of capacity that caused that blackout, and certainly they didn't need a lot new coal plants to do that. Frankly, what they were doing was this amazing plan to use the way the Texas restructuring law worked. The, the plan was for them to make enormous profits by getting paid at the prices that $14 gas was getting paid for their new coal plants. And the plan was to run out of business at the gas plants, but not quite all of them because they needed to have a clearing price set by high natural gas. Were you convinced the forecast that Texas was going to essentially be in the danger zone as far as a supply of power? No. And certainly there was no evidence that 11 new plants were needed. And upon discovery, we learned that their plan included really getting a bunch of existing natural gas plants to shut down. A little hard for me to tell you what I knew when. Some of the things we learned when we discovered and got their files and what they were really thinking, but they clearly were not thinking about some 
some reliability problem. They had this plan that was, we're going to make boatloads of money building conventional coal plants and get paid at this outrageous rate because the way the reverse auction worked on the, re- the Texas restructuring law. They were trying to manipulate the law, frankly. After the planned expansion, and this takes us from spring to the rest of 2006, the backlash against these 11 coal-fired plants, it really heated up. Tell us about your role in that and, and just really what was going on in Texas at that time. Well, I've never seen anything like it. Uh, let me just start with, this was not in our strategic plan for the year, and we didn't have any resources for this big fight. But frankly, if it was not us, there was nobody else with the ability to intervene here. So we started putting together people at EDF working extra time from their other responsibilities. And then we started talking to folks. I've never seen an outpouring against an idea like this. First cities, big and little, were outraged by it because they figured out this was going to cause tremendous new air pollution in their cities and it would harm economic growth of other businesses. So Dallas and Houston, but Waco, the Waco Chamber of Commerce came out against it. Then a group of businessmen independently organized something called Texas Businesses for Clean Air and they got dozens of businesses to come out. For me, it was amazing. I had lawyers volunteer to work long hours. A lawyer law firm took over our lead and reduced their fee by two-thirds. This is a true story. I had the um, father. My daughter played pretty high-level club volleyball, and he had read about what we're doing. He said, I want to give you a check. And I said, well, that's very nice of you. I appreciate it. And a lot of people are volunteering money. And he put a check in my pocket, and I looked later, and it was $10,000 unsolicited. I don't think that's ever happened to me before. People just knew it was bad for Texas. And it was greedy. I was quoted in Fortune magazine saying, pigs get fed and hogs get slaughtered. I'm not trying to say anything bad about the way they look or anything. I'm just saying they overreached. And the outpouring of opposition was related to that. And the more we discovered, the more we realized this was crazy. One of the things that I think people may not remember, but an inconvenient truth came out in June of that year, 2006. I don't think there's any doubt that it forever entered the zeitgeist. But do you feel that that movie made a difference in the TXU debate that was going on at the exact same time? Well, I will tell you, it was a time when solving global warming was a bipartisan matter, that the main bill that was under consideration was McCain-Lieberman, with a lot of Republican co-sponsors. And this was an enormous amount of new carbon dioxide. I can't remember every number, but let me tell you one startling number. These new 11 plants that Texas Utilities was proposing would have been more greenhouse gas emissions than the total greenhouse gas emissions. That includes cars and power plants and everything else of 21 states. Not 21 states together, but if the TXU 11 power plants were a state in terms of emission profile, they would be more than 21 other states. That was a staggering amount of air pollution they were proposing. These were big coal plants and a lot of them. This was the line that TXU was using all during the discussion of this expansion, the 11 plants. They were saying that they will reduce the net reductions by 20% across their entire fleet. What did you make of that number? You didn't buy it. 
bad, I take it. First, that wasn't true with regard to carbon dioxide, and then they assumed a bunch of things about NOx that were not true also, but that's, you know. They also said the gas prices would always stay at $14. Their business model was around gas prices will always be high. We can get paid at gas price, at high gas prices for a conventional coal plant. I want to talk a little bit about the buyout, and this was announced in February of 2007, but it's been reported that you, I'm not sure if it was specifically you, by you I really mean the environmental community, right? Were brought into early discussions before that announcement. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so out of the blue, we were really making some headway on TXU. The stockbrokers started to question this plan. The legislature had gotten involved. The litigation was going well. We discovered all sorts of great documents that we were about to slap them with, including they planned to buy the boilers from China. You know, this was not a great economic development program for the U.S. It was Chinese, but a bunch of things. But out of the blue, we got a call from Bill Riley, who had been under Bush one, the head of EPA. And he called my president, my boss, Fred Krupp, and said that TPG that he worked for, Texas Pacific Group, is that the right name? It's a private That's it. And KKR and some others were thinking about buying this company. The stock price had gone down. They thought it might be a deal, but they would not they wanted to settle stuff with us and they would not go forward with the uh, deal unless we could work out an arrangement and they were willing to among other things dramatically reduce the number of coal plants that they would build and make a bunch of other environmental commitments so literally i don't know what day of the week it was probably a monday or tuesday it was middle of the week my wife was gone and i got on the last plane to california that night didn't quite tell my staff what was going on other than I needed them to be there to do calculations for me. And so I went in person and an NRDC who was not really involved in the case very much, but who Bill Riley knew from his days at EPA, got them involved. And one of their folks was on the phone with me regularly during the next day. And we started at eight and went to about maybe a little bit after midnight. And at one point I called Tom Smith, a public citizen who was intimately involved and told him what was going on and got some help from him. But it was a pretty hush-hush thing. At one point, I thought negotiations were going to break down. And basically, we stepped back and I came up with a brand new list of things. In addition to reducing the coal plants they were going to build, they were going to stop all the plants they had not begun construction on and complete only the two, both of them they'd already spent over $100 million on. I thought it was very unlikely they were not going to try to build those plants. Then they made real commitments with regard to renewable energy and the amount of sulfur dioxide and carbon dioxide and a bunch of other commitments. In writing, we signed it. They got on a private plane back to Texas overnight. We were very careful that we weren't doing anything where we got any benefit, so I couldn't fly the plane. They couldn't pay for my flight out. They couldn't pay for my hotel. But in any event, they went back and talked to the powers that be, and then what we had worked out is that I would be there on Sunday morning. It broke on us. I guess we talked on Saturday. Stories were on Sunday. But on a Saturday, I basically did interviews and my boss, Fred Krupp, did interviews all day long. So big story in New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Dallas Morning News had a big, big story, lots of press. I was going to cite that story. That was going to actually be my next question, but I think you covered quite a bit of it. Was It was a 1A story, Dallas Morning News. It was on a Sunday. Now, the buyout was leaked 
leaked Friday. TXU was instructed, staff was instructed, don't talk. So basically, you guys dominated the paper coverage. That was a Sunday story that it was revealed that you guys went out to San Francisco and spent 17 hours with the buyers. Now, I think it just said Texas Pacific Group. Was it boat? Was it KKR? Was KKR it everybody? KKR was somebody there in person, yes. And it was at the TPG offices on California Street. KKR had one or two people there. I think they had people from Morgan Stanley or one of the big investment banks also had a big share of that. And I think they were on, only on the phone, but they might have had somebody there. All I remember was me with three to five to seven people all day long. It was not TXU. It was not John Wilder. It was not John Wilder. They were trying to buy it from John Wilder. He was not there. No. Was there anything else? That's a fascinating picture to see the environmental community basically choosing their terms in front of Wall Street, I guess you could call it, or big money, big finance, for 17 hours. You know, they had some things that seemed good to them but didn't matter to us. Not only would they drop the plans to build the plants in Texas, but TXU had announced they were going to build two, might have been three coal plants in Pennsylvania, and they agreed to drop those. We were looking for innovative things. One of the things they added was that greenhouse gas progress would be one of the criteria that their CEO's compensation would be judged on every year. I think that's the first time that had happened for a utility in the country. More than one around the country have added that to their criteria for compensating their CEOs. They were going to set up a sustainable energy advisory group. They were insisting that I be on that, and I, I jokingly said, if you allow me not to be on that committee, I'll let you build another coal plant. That wasn't a serious thing, but I knew that serving on that committee would just be more work for me, which it turned out to be. KKR, uh, one of their senior folks, was on the board of a couple environmental groups. One of the things that was clear is they did not want to own a company that they would have to take hard questions from their fellow board members for bad emissions profile. That was part of what was going on there. They also thought it wasn't good economic policy or economic strategy to build all these coal plants. It turned out to be true. So I think what I was trying to get to is this idea of you go there and then they kind of lay it on you because it had to be secret before you really got there out of sim. And then they're like, okay, here's what's going on. What do you want? I guess that had to take you back a little bit. And then it was like, oh my goodness, I need to make some phone calls. I mean, was that kind of going through your head? This idea that I need to kind of put together? Well, we had it set up that Hawkins would be on the phone and I would talk with him regularly because he was going to have to sign off on it. And that my big boss, Fred Krupp, was going to be available to talk as well. We knew the proposal was going to include only two of the plants that were already well under construction and they were going to offer other things. So we knew that I was going to get some new things. So I got that immediately. And I guess in those days we were faxing, I guess. Are you guys in a boardroom just whiteboarding this out? What does that look like? We're in a boardroom. I mean, I literally think they had a draft that somebody had typed. And I did some editing with a pen, and they would do some scratching, and then I'd mark through some stuff. But we did a lot of writing, you know, by hand editing things. Looking back on this whole thing and what ultimately happened, I kind of like to say, look, there was a big confluence of stuff going on at that time. An inconvenient truth comes out. Greenhouse gases 
has really become in the forefront. TXU wants to build a bunch of coal-fired units. Natural gas, we are one year away from the start of the fracking revolution. And so all these things are in transition right around that 0607 timeframe. Do you think that the TXU coal expansion was a seminal point in the way the entire nation looks at coal? In the sense, the idea that building massive coal plants, a large number of them, nobody ever proposed that again. I still was shocked about how many mistakes they made in this. They just thought they could ram this through. They could beat the legislature. They could beat it in court. They would overwhelm us with legal power. They could PR their way to it. It was hubris. And it was also just a plan that was really about making very short-term money for the company and not what was good for the state or even good for the company long-term, frankly. One of the things I thought was interesting in the news coverage was they would contrast what TXU was doing versus what NRG was doing. Do you remember that? It was TXU's building the coal plants. NRG wants to build gasification plants. Do you feel that that dynamic was played in the media a little bit? Well, yeah, the other thing is they suffered from the smartest man in the room syndrome. They just thought they were smarter than everybody, including NRG. And one of the things I thought was interesting was it was a very interesting coalition of people who were against that expansion. The most interesting one I found was Chesapeake Energy. They are the ones who funded the Coal is Filthy campaign, right? What did you make of that natural gas going against TXU? Well, the first thing is people thought the ads were coming from us and we didn't have that kind of money. I knew it wasn't us. It didn't ultimately surprise me because I actually think the smart gas companies understand their opposition is not with the environmental community. Their competition is dirty coal plants and that they have a competitive advantage on lower pollution if they will play that up. And that's where a big market for them could be. In fact, there's a lot of opportunity for gas to take more share from coal plants in Texas. Which, of course, would be good for Texas in the sense that Texas is the source of most of that gas that's being produced. And almost all the coal that's burned in Texas now comes from Wyoming. I said at the time, they kept talking about what a great economic opportunity this was for Texas. And I said it was a great economic plan for Wyoming. That the coal would come here and our dollars would go back in those same trains. I'm interviewing several people who were involved in this. And one of them was some of the people who were actually on the TSU communications team. So it'd be interesting to see what you think of this. Do you think it's easier for environmentalists to be portrayed in a favorable light than a utility or a trade association representing big companies in the media? Well, we have some advantages and they have some advantages. They had a team of communication folks and they had paid media like we didn't have. And they had what at that point was probably a pretty good local brand. I had some people on my Texas advisory board say, you can't beat them. They're too popular, even though they're doing an awful thing. But yeah, certainly on whether something is polluting or not, we are a more credible messenger than they are. And when they started making false claims about how good this was for the environment, they were in real trouble. So they became the bad guy for two reasons. One, they were arrogant. And two, they were overreaching. We'll wrap this up, but I think I wanted to let you leave us with some final thoughts. What can be learned or what were some of the lessons from this episode in energy history? I think, number one, one ought to both respect other parties, whether they're bearers of cities or other businesses or environmental groups. And two, if you have a plan that will be the largest single plan for additional pollution in the history of the U.S., you might get some opposition. Well said. Jim Marston, Environmental Defense Fund, thank you so much for your time. All right. Bye-bye.
That was Jim Marston, VP of Clean Energy and Texas Regional Director of Environmental Defense Fund. I mentioned how gracious Jim was for this appearance. He first offered to do the interview while on vacation in Italy. I told him it could wait. And when we did do the interview and ran a little longer than anticipated, he excused himself from a meeting so we could wrap it up. I can't say this enough. I have found that the accessibility that environmental groups provide to the media is something the business community could definitely learn a thing or two from. Thank you as well to Catherine Itner and Stacy Brick for helping with this interview as well. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. You can reach me at energy-cast.com and on Instagram at Host Energy for a couple of great picks. That wraps up this episode in our TXU Attend series. I'm Jay Dauenhauer. We'll see you next time.